Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Today, we move on to Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes, or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, or Seven Champions for Seven Gates for Seven Other Champions in which everyone dies, or not everyone, but you know. I used the EDA Morsehead translation that is available at classics.mit.edu. This is the same translator that I used for the suppliants. There wasn't anything in particular that jumped out at me with this text. It seems to have scanned pretty well when it was converted from paper to digital. There's no weird capital I, lowercase l confusion this time. Seven Against Thebes premiered in 467 BCE and won first prize at Dionysia. Are you sensing a theme in how Aeschylus was received? And yes, my original intention was to present his plays in the order in which they were written, but while this likely did premiere before the suppliants, there's a good reason to tackle the suppliants before Seven Against Thebes. You'll recall that the suppliants is the first play in the Danaids trilogy. Well, with Seven Against Thebes, we have the opposite problem. It is the third play in Aeschylus's Oedipus trilogy, and like the suppliants, is the only play in the trilogy to survive. So you're leveling up in your study of Greek tragedy because this play is going to assume you've read some things that we no longer have copies of. Think of it like watching Return of the Jedi without having seen A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back. You can follow the plot, but the references to earlier episodes would make a lot more sense if you'd seen them first. Fortunately, you probably have already heard of Oedipus, so you aren't starting with a completely blank slate. If you haven't, well, there once lived a man named Oedipus Rex. You may have heard about his odd complex. His name appears in Freud's index because he loved his mother. Yes, that Oedipus. We're most familiar with the Sophocles telling of the Oedipus story, but Aeschylus wrote a version of it too. Here's what we think we know about the Aeschylus trilogy. The two plays that preceded Seven Against Thebes were Laius and Oedipus. Laius is the king of Thebes. An oracle tells him that his son is destined to kill him, so Laius orders that his infant son be killed. But baby Oedipus is rescued and raised by the king and queen of Corinth as their own son. After he grows up, Oedipus learns from the oracle that he is destined to kill his father, and he doesn't know that the king of Corinth isn't his biological father, so he leaves Corinth and winds up traveling to Thebes, where he gets into a fight with Laius and kills him. Oedipus then marries the widowed queen of Thebes. Yes, that would be his mother, and they have some kids together before he finds out that the man he killed was his biological father. Laius and Oedipus likely told this part of the story. Seven Against Thebes picks up the story of what happened in Thebes after Oedipus's reign. Seven Against Thebes has a cast of thousands, or at least it feels that way when compared to the last two plays that we read. It really doesn't have that many more people in it. We simply have names for a lot of them. Now, there are some characters that you need to know because they talk or, you know, sing. And there are some that you need to know because they are talked about. The people who don't talk or, you know, sing can be divided into two groups. There are people who are talked about but who stay off stage for the entire play, and there are people who don't talk even though they do appear on stage. First up is Ateocles. He is one of Oedipus' sons, and he is the current king of Thebes. His twin brother is Polynices. You'll see his name spelled a couple of different ways depending on how it's transliterated from the Greek alphabet to the English alphabet. Because they are twins, neither is the obvious heir to the Theban throne. But they came up with a plan to take turns being king. 
until Eteocles decided that he didn't want to give up his turn, which is how we wound up with this play. Polynices doesn't speak because when he finally does appear on stage at the end of the play, he's, spoiler alert, dead. Next, we have Eteocles' spy, who does what spies do and spies on Polynices' allies before reporting back to Eteocles. The primary homogenous chorus is made up of the Theban women. There is, as usual, a leader of the chorus. A secondary leader also speaks in at least one scene. There's also a secondary chorus of mourners who join the primary chorus in the Exodus. Antigone is Oedipus's daughter, which means she's sister to Eteocles and Polynices. Her name probably sounds familiar to you, too. We'll read Sophocles' version of what happened to Antigone later. That play is set in the aftermath of what happens in this play. Ismene is also Oedipus's daughter, making her sister to Antigone, Eteocles, and Polynices. She doesn't have any individual lines, at least not in the Morshead translation I'm using, but she does sing along with the chorus of mourners, so she isn't technically a non-speaking role. Finally, there is a herald who takes charge at the end of the play. Now for the people who don't speak. There are seven men leading armies against Thebes, thus the name of the play. They are Tydeus, Capaneus, Ateoclus, not to be confused with Ateocles, Hippomedon, Parthenopios, and Amphiaros. Yes, that's only six. Polynices makes seven. The seven marching against Thebes are met by seven fighting for Thebes. These men appear on stage long enough to go off and fight. They are Melanippus, Polyphontes, Megareos, Hyperbius, Actor, and Lasthenes. If you've counted again, yes, that's six because Ateocles is the seventh. You don't necessarily need to know who all of these people are, but they are all named within the play, so I think having an awareness of their names makes the scene in which they are named a bit easier to follow. As a quick refresher, the parts of the tragedy that we are looking for are the prologue, parados, alternating episodes and stasimons, and the exodus. This play has an actual meets the definition of a prologue prologue. At the start of the play, Eteocles talks about how Thebes is preparing for an attack and how he spent a, sent a spy out to check on the forces that have assembled outside the walls of Thebes. The spy returns with the news that the seven have made a sacrifice to Ares and are prepared to go to war. Eteocles responds with his own prayer to Zeus. He also throws in a little bribery, reminding the gods that they'll offer even more and better sacrifices if they win. He exits. The chorus enters and sings a prayer that they will be spared. Their prayer, unlike Eteocles's, is full of terror. They know what will happen if Eteocles is not successful. They know that the women will suffer the most and sing of the threat of rape and enslavement if Thebes is overthrown. And they pray to everyone, Athena, Poseidon, Ares, Aphrodite, Apollo, Artemis, Hera, and they'd probably keep on singing and come up with more gods to pray to if Eteocles didn't return. Eteocles berates the chorus because he doesn't think they're being particularly helpful. He also swears off women, claiming they're the reason that Thebes is troubled. The chorus argues with him for a bit. He tells them to leave the praying to the men before conceding that the women probably weren't hurting anyone after all. That is until they hear the armies that have amassed outside the walls. The leader speaks of their fears, and Eteocles finally tells her to just shut up, which she does, for the moment. 
Eteocles tells the chorus that he's going to go and assemble a team of champions to lead his armies. He exits to do so. The chorus then sings about how they feel about the upcoming war. They aren't assuaged by Eteocles' promise of heroes to protect them. They know that women are the ultimate prize in a war and that while men may be killed, women may suffer for the rest of their lives if a war is lost. The spy, Eteocles, and the six Theban champions enter. Remember that big list of people who don't speak? This is where they come in. The spy describes what is happening at each of Thebes' seven gates, including who is leading the charge at each. That would be the six named people who don't appear on stage. After each description, Eteocles picks one of his six champions who exits without saying anything. So if we're watching the play, we do get a face to go with the name of each of the champions, even though we never hear their voices. The seventh named is Polynices, and Eteocles chooses to face his twin brother himself. The chorus tells him that this is not a good idea, but Eteocles insists and exits. In the second Stasimon, the chorus explains why they think it's such a bad idea for Eteocles to face Polynices. In this song, they recount, they recount how Laius had been warned that his child would be the downfall of his line, and how Laius really tried not to have sex with his wife, but that he could only hold out for so long, and that's how we got Oedipus, who killed Laius and married Laius's wife, you know, Oedipus's mother. You know that part of the story. The spy returns with news from the front, or, you know, the seven gates. The first six gates have been successfully defended. And the seventh? Well, you'll recall that the seventh is where the battle between Eteocles and Polynices was to take place. And that one didn't go so well. Eteocles won, sort of. He did succeed in killing Polynices, but at the same time, Polynices killed Eteocles. So the twin princes who were fighting over who was the rightful king are both dead. Thebes is spared, and the fears the chorus sang about in the Parados and first Stasimon will not come to pass. Antigone, Ismene, and the chorus of mourners enter with the bodies of Eteocles and Polynices. They all, along with the original chorus, sing a funeral dirge. The herald enters. Since both Eteocles and Polynices are dead, there is currently no individual in charge. Instead, he speaks on behalf of the elders of Thebes. They have declared that Eteocles will be buried with all proper funeral rites. Polynices, on the other hand, is a traitor because he attacked Thebes, so his body is to be left outside the gates for the dogs to eat. Antigone is not having this. She loves both of her brothers and declares that she will bury Polynices. She and the Herald get into a bit of a spat over this. Aeschylus does not resolve this part of the story, but we will see how Sophocles handles it when we read his Antigone. The chorus sings of the difficult decision they now have to make, to bury Polynices or not. The chorus splits in two, some going to bury Eteocles and some supporting Antigone and her desire to bury Polynices, even though they were told not to. And that's where the play ends. If you feel like this play lacks resolution, you're not alone. If you do a quick Google Scholar search of the literature about this play, you'll find a number of scholars have focused on the end. Over the years, or centuries, there has been debate over whether or not the end we have is original. And just like the arguments over whether or not Shakespeare wrote all of Shakespeare, there are those who think the ending we have is original, and there are those who think we don't. And there is probably no way for us ever to be certain which camp is correct. The debate stems from the fact that the ending appears to be tacked on. 
The play is the end of a trilogy, but the final scene is setting up what happens next in the myth, the story of what happens when Antigone tries to bury Polynices. I don't have an answer to this question. Maybe this feels tacked on because it was added later, because some impresario wanted Seven Against Thebes to flow seamlessly into Sophocles' Antigone. But this may be how Aeschylus wanted it to end. His audience knew the Oedipus myth well. They knew what came next. This may be Aeschylus's way of reminding his audience that the repercussions of war do not end when the war ends. The tragedy of Lysus' line does not end when Eteocles and Polynices kill each other. The suffering caused by war does not end when a treaty is signed. Viewed this way, the end continues the empathy towards the victims of war that we see in Aeschylus's other works. Another theme that carries from other works into Seven Against Thebes is Aeschylus's treatment of women. He uses their voices to frame the story and to show how the curse on the house of Laius affects more than just the line of his descendants. And while there is a great deal of argument between the chorus and Eteocles, it is the chorus that understands the repercussions of his actions. It is the women who are left at the end. It is women who are choosing to defy the pronouncement of the herald. Next week, we'll take a break from all of this tragedy and take a lighter turn with the start of Greek comedy. Don't worry. We'll come back to Aeschylus in two weeks. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.